After recording this episode, a multi-agency interim final rule for the No Surprises Act was released. This final rule establishes a path forward that could cause significant imaging cuts and reduce patient access to care, regardless of their insurer. Due to the timing of the rule's release, this update was not discussed during this episode. In response to the rule, the ACR released a statement that reads, in part, This rule violates the intent, if not the actual letter, of the No Surprises Act and shatters a rare, bipartisan, industry-wide agreement for equitable provider-insurer dispute resolution. The ACR will work with other healthcare organizations to urge the Biden administration to revise the rule and protect access for millions of patients. Read more about this issue at https colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash acr dash no dash surprises. ACR Bulletin Podcast, a show where we examine the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today we'll be talking with Richard E. Heller III, MD, MBA. Dr. Heller serves as Associate Chief Medical Officer for Communications and Health Policy, as well as National Director of Pediatric Radiology at Radiology Partners. Dr. Heller, we really appreciate you being here today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for, for giving your time to us today. Um, well, today we, we are going to try to tackle somewhat uh, complicated subject, uh, which is the No Surprises Act, uh, which is a reaction to something called um, surprise insurance gaps, or as it's more commonly known, surprise billing. Um, so late last year, Congress uh, did pass something called the No Surprises Act uh, to counteract this concerning problem. Uh, but for those viewers who may be uninitiated in the subject matter, um, uh, on surprise billing. Uh, can you please start by giving us a basic idea of what the practice actually is? Sure. So first of all, let me again say thank you very much for having me here. And, and, I, and I do agree, it is a confusing subject. It is. So before we get into like surprise medical billing or surprise insurance gap, just like something that many people might not know, and you know what I didn't know initially, is that um, when medical groups, radiology practices, they contract with insurance companies and the hospitals do too. So, you know, you're a radiology practice working at, you know, St. Elsewhere Hospital. So you're going to contract with, you know, the insurance companies and their various health plans. And the hospital is going to separately contract with the insurance companies and, and their various health plans. And sometimes those plans don't perfectly align. And insurance companies may want to have narrower networks and they might not include everybody. But for whatever reason, sometimes there's not perfect alignment. And what happens, unfortunately, is that patients can fall into that gap. So, you know, the, the prototypical example of surprise medical billing is that somebody who has, you know, private health insurance and they get unexpected, unanticipated care from an out-of-network provider. And here's the example that gets given a lot. You get hurt at home. You Google where the nearest in-network hospital is. You go to the in-network hospital. You do everything right. And then unbeknownst to you, at that in-network hospital, one of the providers, one of the physicians who was there, who took care of you, wasn't in that particular health plans network. And because they were not in that health plan network, the amount of money that you owe out of pocket can be far more. And I think everybody agrees that's a significant problem. It's a flaw in our system and that it needed to be addressed. Absolutely. And I know, like you said, this is not a new problem. It's been around for quite a, 
quite a while now. Um, so how does this new law that we've been alluding to, and, and it, it, I, I think we should say up front, the law does go into effect in 2022. So we're still in the, the mm -hmm. lead up to it. But how, how does this new law actually protect patients? So the first thing it does is it holds patients harmless. So that's the expression, hold patients harmless. And by the way, there were lots of bills passed out of committee in Congress. They all did that. They all said, look, we need to start with this. We need to stop putting patients in the middle of payment disputes between insurance companies and providers. So if you're a patient and you have private health insurance, you've done everything right, and you get unexpected, unanticipated care from an out-of-network provider, you just owe your normal in-network cost-sharing amount. And so that was one way they just took them out of the middle, right? Take patients out of the middle of those payment disputes between insurance companies and physicians and hold patients harmless. Just, you don't get to dodge your in-network cost-sharing. You still got to pay your in-network cost-sharing. You don't get out of that, but you don't have to pay the other stuff. So that was the first part. The second part that the NSA did, the No Surprises Act did, was that it really made an effort to protect access to care. And it did that by incentivizing network contracting and good faith negotiations between insurance companies and providers. And the NSA really went out of its way to say, look, we do not want to give one side leverage more than the other. We want to promote network contracting. We want to promote good faith negotiations because when you do that, then you incentivize practices to make investments in things like quality improvement, to have more services, to make things more available, to make them more attractive to insurers. We want to incentivize that behavior. And so that behavior then increases access to care for patients. So those were two different ways that the NSA was really useful in terms of protecting patients because it holds them harmless and it protects their access to care. Absolutely. And we should also note that NS, when you say NSA, you're saying, you mean no surprises act. No surprises act. NSA, there's the a more famous security. NSA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to freak anyone security. out. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, no one's, no one's right. under surveillance. Right. Okay. That's the problem. We've got too many acronyms in healthcare. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, that's a holdover from government. That's not, that's not, <laughs> that's not your fault. Um, so you, you touched on it just now, and I, I guess for context, we should say that um, states have tried over the, the span of time this has been an issue to, to pass their own kind of legislation, and we'll get to that a little bit later in our discussion. So, um, but why do you believe a federal bill uh, was needed uh, in, at this point? So that's an important question because like 30-something states have passed laws on surprise medical billing, on the surprise insurance gap. Um, some of them are comprehensive, some of them are not comprehensive, but many states have no law. Mm -hmm. So... We had some states that have no law, some states that have partial laws, some states that have comprehensive laws. And by the way, they all use different approaches and none of them were exactly the same, right? So you've got an incredible patchwork. Mm. So that was one issue was one, we just didn't have a federal standard. There was no national standard. And so we said, look, some states don't even have anything. We need to have a federal standard. We think this is a real problem and we do. So that was one issue. The other issue has to do with something called ERISA, which rhymes with Melissa because I kept mispronouncing it. And that's how I remembered how to pronounce it, ERISA plans. So ERISA plans are these private health insurance plans that are self-funded. So typically it's like, you know, some big company um, that has employer-sponsored insurance and they're self-funded. These are the ERISA plans. And ERISA plans are not under state jurisdiction. They're under federal jurisdiction. Mm. And they have, you know, 130, 140 something million people in this country that have private health insurance are on ERISA plans. And the ERISA plans are, have their jurisdiction at the federal level. So if you want to actually deal with surprise medical billing, this price insurance gap, you've got to deal with the ERISA plans, which means we needed a federal law to deal with it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because that you're educating me because when I'm reading this, I'm like, well, I thought it seems like the states, you know, there's 
a lot of people have that impulse, just let the states deal with it. So I think that's that's important that you cleared that up. Thank you. No, I found that confusing too. And that's why I had to, and I kept mispronouncing Arisa until I was like, it rhymes with Melissa. Just say that's what Arisa they need to do. With Melissa. That we need to have, we need to have federal legislation where all acronyms are just people's names or something. Because or rhymes with something, so I can remember how to rhymes with it. a name, exactly. Right? So, we, so we all can be on the same page, yeah. Right. Um, well, since surprise billing is so unfair, and I think you, uh, you know, I don't think that's uh State, I don't think that's a subjective statement. I think there's a pretty much a consensus at this point that, that is fairly unfair. Um, it depends who you ask probably. But, uh, and so many people from so many different sides agree that it's kind of unfair. Um, why is it so hard? Why was it so hard up to this point to pass uh, national law against it? So you ask a really great question. And you know, I found it frustrating that some people would be felt that if you were against a certain bill on surprise medical billing, well, that meant that you were for surprise medical billing. Well, wait a minute. I, there's this bill out there against surprise medical billing. If you don't support it, you support surprise medical billing. And, and then you had to explain to people, no, that that's not the case. That laws on surprise medical billing actually had, do two things. And the first one's obvious. The first one is they end surprise medical billing, right? And, and that part was non-controversial. It's patient protective, it's patient centric, and there was broad support. Every bill that passed out of Congress on surprise medical billing on this issue took patients out of the middle, held them harmless, and would end the issue of surprise medical billing. So that part was easy. It was the second part that people didn't necessarily understand immediately. And that is that laws on surprise medical billing, because they have the ability to manipulate in-network rates are actually sort of controversial because they can disrupt good faith negotiations. Do not take my word for this, by the way. The Congressional Budget Office, in their analysis, a couple of the bills specified this, and they were very clear. They said that laws on surprise medical billing have the ability to disrupt, or you know, whatever the language they used was, you know, negotiations between providers and insurance companies and can change in-network rates. And they actually were pretty clear that the majority, I think they said 80%, of the budgetary effects of the surprise medical billing laws that they looked at, one from the House Energy and Commerce and one from the Senate Help Committee, the vast majority, 80% of the budgetary effects of those laws would come from changes in the in-network rates. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't talking about the out-of-network rates. It was saying it, it was going to reduce in-network rates. And the numbers they quoted was that while there'd be you know, regional variability, on average, um, rates would go down 15 to 20% nationally as a result of the surprise medical billing law. Now, again, these are the in-network rates. Right. And I think that's what people didn't understand is that we all agree we wanted to end surprise medical billing, but we wanted to do so in a way that protects good faith negotiations, that protects our practices and that protects our patients. And that's what the debate was actually about. Right. And I wonder if I could uh, surprise you with a question we didn't think about uh, beforehand, okay. but, uh, but, sure. um, but I was wondering if you might uh, talk about just for a, just real briefly, it's, I think it's always good to contextualize it within radiology because we're, we're talking about these fairly big abstract ideas, but they have real world com uh, consequences on real doctors and real patients. So, um, I mean, maybe even anecdotally, is this something you've dealt with or that, you know, colleagues have dealt with and, and why, uh, I guess, specifically, is it, is it, uh, bad for radiology that this, this has been allowed to go on? Sure. So, Let's give an example. So, you know, I, I would give talks on surprise billing around the country. This is, you know, predating the No Surprises Act. And I had people come to me and say, Rich, I got to tell you, um, I, I appreciate you coming here to give this talk, but, you know, our practice is we're almost exclusively in network. We don't surprise bill. And, and 
we have really good contracts. So I don't really care about this. And you know what, Rich, if like, let's say we're 2% out of network and all I'm going to get is the median in-network rate for those 2%, which I don't really care. That's fine. And what I had to explain to them was, you're the one who's on the menu. That if you go look at the CBO score, you are the practice that's on the menu. That if a bill were to pass that uses the median in-network rate as a benchmark payment system, then that is going to dramatically affect you know, the specialty and many of the practices around it, because it will give insurance companies unbalanced leverage to then call up practices that have rates that are above that and then simply cancel them. And in fact, um, we've, we've seen some evidence around the country anecdotally about that. The uh, Anesthesia Society, ASA, did an informal survey in 2020, and they looked at how many of their practices had been receiving mid-contract notices of termination, non-renewal, asking for significant reductions in reimbursement. And there's a hypothesis that many people believe that this was being incentivized by a belief that a surprise medical billing law was going to pass using the median in-network rate as a benchmark. Okay, that makes sense. Well, thank you for uh, contextualizing that. I, you know, uh, and indulging me, I, it wasn't something we talked about before, but it just occurred to me that it might be nice to bring it down to earth for just one minute. Well, and, and you mentioned uh, benchmarking just there. And uh, my next question has to do with that. I, I was wondering if you could explain, you know, a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of how the new law works and how it's different from past efforts and maybe even how it's different than some like the, like the patchwork you talked about before, state efforts. I mean, I hear terms like you just mentioned, be benchmarking, arbitration. Uh, can you explain what, what all this is about? Sure. So the patient's going to have to pay their normal in-network cost sharing. But then the, the remainder, the balance would then get paid by the insurance company. And a question was, well, how much does the insurance company pay? Like, how do we figure out that number? And there were two big approaches. One approach was to value the service using an established benchmark, for example, Medicare. So we're going to use 85% of Medicare, 100% of Medicare, 110% of Medicare. We're going to use Medicare as a benchmark. Another way to benchmark would be to use the median in-network rate that that plan uses. And this is the one that got a lot of traction. They said, fine, we won't use Medicare because Medicare has its own issues, but we'll use the median rate, the 50th percentile that that plan pays. And that seemed very attractive to people because they're like, look, you're not going to get the best rate, but you're also not going to get the worst rate. You're going to get the 50th percentile. And so that seemed very attractive initially. However, it disregards the analogy of what will happen if you use that as a standard. If you use it as a standard, then that then becomes the new ceiling. So to use the example I gave before, if you were to pass a law that uses the median in-network rate, and this was proposed by Congress, to use the median in-network rate as the payment standard, and, and we can put some numbers on it to make it maybe a little easier to understand. So let's say the 50th percentile rate is $50 for a service. The 100th percentile is $100. But let's say your practice, your rate is $60. So you're getting $60 for a service, you know, $10 above the median. So if a law were to pass using that $50 as the median rate, well, the insurance company would simply call you up and say, hi, um, you have two choices. We're okay with either one. One, you can go out of network. And if you go out of network with this, you're not going to get $60. You're going to get $50. You're also not going to get paid as quickly because you're going to have to go out of network and fight us for the money. You'll get it eventually, but it's certainly going to delay your revenue cycle process. Or you can stay in network, but you're not going to get $60. Um, in fact, you're not going to get $50 because, you know, it's a lot, it's very beneficial for you to be in network. You're going to get paid faster. You know what you're going to get paid. You, you have less cost. 
that will decrease your revenue cycle time. So instead of $50, $47 or some number like that. What you've done is you've taken everybody that's above the median and you've told the insurance companies that you can push them out of network or make them take a significantly lower rate. Yeah. And that's what happens with benchmarking, even benchmarking at the median in network rate level. So it doesn't just affect those 2% of cases that you're out of network on, it would then push you out of network or force you to accept a below median rate. Mm -hmm. The other approach is using arbitration. And the entire idea of arbitration is to protect good faith negotiations, not to favor the insurance companies or the medical practices, but rather incentivize both groups to be reasonable incentivize network contracting. And in fact, that's what we've seen used in other places. And that was the approach that the No Surprises Act used, which is using an arbitration-based model to incentivize good faith negotiations and incentivize network contracting. Yeah. And I can see somebody, and I myself am wondering that arbitration, if we could just zoom in on that for a second. Um, can you just give like a general ex explanation as to who, who is the arbiter and how that actually works? Sure. So several states already have it. So New York actually was the first state to pass comprehensive surprise medical billing law legislation. And they use an arbitration-based model. And what it says is that, you know, patients are held harmless. They're out of the way. They're, they're held harmless. They're not in the middle. And if the insurance company and the physician practice can't come together and figure something out, then they have to go to a third-party non-conflicted arbiter. And that arbiter then makes a decision about what it's going to be. They each have to give a best and final offer. And it, most of them use, including New York, something called baseball style arbitration, mm. which is what's used in baseball, where each side gives one offer. And then the arbiter selects one of the two. They can't, to use the expression, split the baby. So if one side says 50 and one side says 100, the arbiter can't choose 75. They have to choose either 50 or 100. And what using baseball-style arbitration means is that both sides are incentivized to be reasonable. Because if you give some crazy number, well, you know you're going to lose because the other side has to simply give a less crazy number and you'll automatically lose. Right. So both sides are incentivized strongly to contract, to give reasonable numbers. Um, and what we've seen in New York is it's in less than four years, their, their plan saved consumers over $400 million dollars. Um, it decreased out-of-network billing. And it is worth noting that I went through their uh, report, radiology was less than 1% of disputes. So even though radiology has not been a bad actor in this, and we were you know, less than 1%, they didn't quantify how much lower, we were in the less than 1% category, we're still affected by this. So it still makes sense for us to be aware of what's going on. Of course. And it's funny that New York is, uh, is the baseball arbiter. It's just uh, such a baseball-oriented uh, place. I, I think that's appropriate. Well, Texas is the same, right? You've got oh, Texas and New York. Texas and New York. So, wow. Who's I mean, next? so Texas, we can all agree Texas and New York have very different, like, you know, local culture, local color. But Texas also has an arbitration-based model. Mm. Um, big base, big baseball. Yeah. And in Texas, they use an arbitration model. Most of them, interestingly, are settled by teleconference before it even goes to arbitration. And in Texas, their arbitration model has decreased consumer complaints more than I think 95% and decreased physician complaints like 70%. Wow, so that's that's all the proof you need. So now, we're seeing very strong evidence from arbitration. Mm -hmm. And and this, I'm, I, I'm so sorry to, to stick on this point. And if this is, I apologize if this is a really basic question, but who actually acts as the arbiter in a lot of these, um, I, I'm sure it's different. It's not a stupid question, it's a great question. So you want to make sure that it's there, there has to be a list of arbiters and both sides have to convey it and they have to be non-conflicted. Right. And that's very important that it has to be non-conflicted because there is a history of 
um, conflicted groups being used in surprise billing. In fact, in New York, what led to their law was the company called Ingenex mm. that provided the data for what the, the reimbursement rate should be was actually owned by a very large insurance company. Oh, and the surprise, New York surprise. Attorney General got curious, like, it seems like they would have an incentive to, to manipulate the rates. And in fact, the New York Attorney General did an investigation, found out that was the case oh, and said, no, we can't have that, that you can't be doing that. And so um, it's very important that you have non-conflicted data sources and non-conflicted oh. arbiters. Oh, I see. So it's like a data-oriented company who a lot of times exactly. access the and that arbiter. Was, exactly. So they okay. would give the data about what the usual and customary rate should be, gotcha. which is what New York did prior to 2009. I see. Okay. They paid UCR, usual and customary rate. But the company that figured out what the usual and customary rate was is actually owned by a big insurance company. Well, you can't fault so, them for trying, I, you know. And the New York Attorney General's <laughs> office found that, that that company was actually skewing the rates. I see. Um, and so there was a big lawsuit. So all it is a problem. Yeah. Worth, worth a Google. It's very interesting. Wow. And so yes, you want to have non-conflicted arbiters and non-conflicted sources of information. Well, and my next qu question was kind of about data and, and the experience with this approach. I mean, have ha aside from like the New Yorks and the Texases of the world, um, do, do you foresee there being enough data and, and enough, uh, for lack of a better word, arbiters to go around, uh, you know, locally to make this kind of a tenable situation, or maybe I've painted it all wrong and they're going to centralize it somehow or. No. So you ask a good question, which is, and, and the, the Nose Prices Act actually talks about this. It says that there's actually money to have states that don't have, <clears throat> excuse me, an all payer claims database, create one. And if you do have one to improve it, gotcha. to make sure that you have a robust source of information for where you should be getting your data about what the appropriate um, median and network rate is and what the appropriate claims are and, and having some data about that. Again, and it's important that it's actually comprehensive and non-conflicted. Yeah, and I, I would assume there's some sort of build-in process for, for trying to uh, you know, uh, avoid that kind of uh, conflict like you just mentioned in New York, um, mm -hmm. but, or maybe that's part of the, the rulemaking process going forward, I don't know. But. And that's part of the whole idea is you have to make sure and that there has to be a list and they have to be non-conflicted. Uh, a recent article you uh, authored found that radio, and I'm quoting here, radiology mm -hmm. practices, even those that are fully in network um, or uh, that never practiced surprise billing could nonetheless be affected by the NSA. Uh, you've already uh, touched on this a little bit, but could you say a little bit more about uh, how radiology groups might be affected um, and, and if they should be concerned, what, what steps can they take going forward to uh, ensure they don't, that, um, you know, that they're not somehow negatively, you know, impacted by this, uh, even though there are some unintended consequences there, maybe? No, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, because I do want to reiterate, this is one of the main things that I wanted to make sure people understand is that, you know, even if you do as a medical practice, you're doing everything right, you're in network, you're not surprised, billing, you're not doing any of that, you're a good actor, you can still be impacted by this. There's that false narrative that only groups that were doing surprise medical billing or that you know, that was their financial strategy are going to be impacted by this. And that is absolutely not true. And that was, you know, a main thing that I want people to understand that you can be doing everything right and you can be negatively impacted by this. Um, and I think that's caused a lot of confusion. I mean, certainly we saw that when people were lobbying against some of the bills in Congress that had to use a benchmark approach. And they thought that if you were against those bills, that meant that you supported surprise medical billing, which is not the case. So what I would encourage groups to do, now that the No Surprises Act is law, it's undergoing a rulemaking process. The first interim final rule has actually already come out and the second will be coming out sometime later this summer or early this fall. 
And these will detail how the law is actually operationalized. And the American College of Radiology has done a wonderful job monitoring this, um, will you know, be commenting on these interim final rules, and has really been on top of the entire process. So my advice to people was simply to be engaged with the ACR and to keep an eye out using the, you know, the Radiology Advocacy Network. Um, the, every week, the ACR sends out a policy information email, giving you updates, showing you the letters, showing you the proposed rules. I would keep track of all that stuff because the ACR has really been very, very helpful. It may very well be that there becomes a, a call to action where we ask people in uh, the ACR to reach out to their Congress people who will then reach out to the rulemaking bodies and specify, hey, you know, we have concerns about this. We're concerned about how the No Surprises Act is being implemented. And if it's in, if we you know the college feels that it's important to do that, then they will have that call to action. So mm -hmm. my, my suggestion to people is simply to stay engaged with the ACR and to read those bulletins. Yeah, and that was actually part of my next question was, you know, so much of this is is on a national level at this point, um, you know, for, for the reasons you outlined earlier. And I was just kind of wondering, like, you know, how can listeners, you know, as this rulemaking is playing out and stuff like that, um, you know, how can they kind of advocate for a reasonable policy? It just in the meantime, um, but I think you've you've kind of laid it out right there. But is there anything uh, beyond that that anyone can do? Or is this more of a uh, just act when called upon and just kind of sit and wait and, and see how things play out? Or is there, because I know there's a lot of people listening who probably want to want to take some sort of action. So I guess we could put a finer uh, uh, boundary around what, what they can actually do. Sure. So that's an important question. So a lot of this, we're talking about the federal level, but there are still state laws and there's still action on state laws. So I would encourage people to be very engaged with their state radiological society because that's where you're going to hear about what's going on in my state level. And there may very well be things you should be doing at the state level right now. You know, Virginia has just, they passed a law and they've just released their first bit of data on it. So we're still seeing states that are just passing laws, discussing them and operationalizing them. And a huge question is going to be, how does the federal law interact with the state laws? In some cases, it's clear. In some cases, it's not clear. Mm. And so I think that's going to be an advocacy subject going forward is, hey, how should we be handling these, these states? that have some law in the books, but there's also a federal law to make sure that we have a process that isn't so confusing where there's two-tier justice, where you know these people go this way, these people go that way, and then everybody's getting confused. Gotcha. And uh, just, to, just as a last question, do you, how do you see this playing out? Do you think that this is going to be a thing where you know everything goes live 2022 and it's pretty much uh, a smooth sailing from there? Or do you think this is going to be a constantly evolving thing over time where you know, one cohort pushes back against another and it's, you know what I mean? Like, is there going to be a point where everything is kind of settled or, or, or is this just going to be a constant, a thing people are going to constantly have to be aware of? So I, I was once told that if you're going to look into the crystal ball, be prepared to eat glass. <laughs> so with the caveat that you're asking me to I look like into that. the crystal ball, that I might have to eat glass. Yes. My hypothesis is that um, it will go live in 2022, that that the interim final rules are coming out. They're not doing proposed rules, they're doing interim final rules. So they're already putting out these final rules that they plan to go live with it in 2022. Gotcha. However, I'll give two caveats. One, I think that the issues related to federalism, the interaction between the federal law and the state law, in my opinion, and I'm somebody who, who calls the, you know, the lawyers who are really into this and ask them lots of questions, I find it to be incredibly confusing. Uh -huh. And I think some of that may get actually settled in the court system, that there may be lawsuits about trying to figure out which one applies here and how that's going to be handled. I think that's going to be a big issue. And I also think that you make a good point that while the law itself in its statutory and there's you know, 
regulations, what's going to happen, but the actual rulemaking process will continue to evolve. And we will see, you know, probably over the next several years, the system settle in. My hope is that the law through rulemaking will be implemented according to the way it was intended, according to what Congress has said, and that that very quickly settles in and that these issues go away and that we now have a standard and that patients are taken out of the middle, both sides are encouraged to have good faith negotiations, and we end this issue of the surprise insurance gap. Well, I hope that plays out the, the way that your crystal ball is, is showing you. So that that's great. It's a great note to end on. Uh, it's been so nice talking to you. Where, where can people uh, find you online if they'd like to continue this, this clearly important conversation? Sure. So, you know, I, I'm on Twitter um, at, at reh3md, the number 3md, at reh3md. And honestly, if people have any questions, you can just email me directly at, at Richard dot heller h-e-l-l-e-r richard.heller at radpartners.com richard.heller at radpartners.com just shoot me an email well thank you for making yourself so available and i can speak from personal experience you're very uh thoughtful and and uh speedy with your responses um well if for our viewers uh, i just want to turn it over to you if you have any ideas for future show topics um please let us know on twitter uh, we're always watching our twitter stream uh at radiology acr let us know uh if you have any show ideas going forward uh by using the hashtag at acr bulletin podcast um, i also invite you to check out all of our past episodes at apple podcasts spotify google podcasts and be sure to check out uh, and subscribe to acr's youtube channel to see our, all our new episodes um Thanks again, Dr. Heller, so much. We really appreciate your time today. And please come back as this situation evolves. I think we're going to need you. You might be a regular guest at some point. <laughs> um, but thank, And also, thank you so much to our listeners. This has been the ACR Bulletin Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>